Overflow, thank you for just being such a fan of who they are. And as we continue to process through the night, I just hope that their stories really prove to be uh, just so encouraging to you. Ever since I sat down with both of them, uh, with Jenna, and then as Jake and Jenna and I have like talked about their stories and the people that they are and the leaders that they are in Overflow, we are just consistently encouraged uh, by, the, by the life that they are living. Uh, tonight, I'm very glad uh, that you are either in the room or you are watching online right now. We are finishing up our series called Yeshua. Uh, and if you haven't been here over the past couple of weeks, uh, just a couple things kind of to bring you up to speed. We called it Yeshua because that is actually the shortened version of the Hebrew name for Jesus. His original name was Yehoshua, uh, and Yeshua is the shortened version of it. Uh, we tagline the series, The One Who Changed Everything. I don't know if you noticed this on the way in tonight, uh, but we had a huge banner made that says, Jesus Changes Everything, because we really do believe that Jesus changed everything through his life, death, and resurrection. And for you today, he changes everything. Like when you come face to face with his love and his hope and his grace, I believe everything begins to shift. Everything begins to change. And it might not change all at one time. And a lot of us in our faith journey, we are looking for that moment, that light switch, flick of the switch kind of moment where everything begins to become clear. But I think that the, the beautiful part of Jesus is he pursues us consistently and walks with us every step of the way. So I'm excited about where we're going tonight and we're gonna cover a good bit of ground just like we did last week. Uh, I'm really hopeful. Uh, I hope that you leave with some clarity on a, on a couple different things, uh, but we don't want to give you too much tonight, but we really do want to kind of push ourselves in our understanding of who Jesus really was. We said this last week, Jesus gave his life to establish a new covenant and demonstrate a new way to live. And I think that this is so important because when you, we begin to look at Jesus and we begin to look at the things that he changed, it would be pretty easy to say, man, Jesus changed everything and not begin to dig beneath the surface of all the different things that he did change. And last week, if you weren't here, we talked about what the new way to live was and looks like that Jesus came to demonstrate. A couple things that we said along the way was one, uh, we believe that life is best when given away because Jesus demonstrated this idea of serving. He even said that he came to serve, so we should serve. He washed his disciples' feet. And if you look at the cultural implications of that, that was radical. That was not normal for a teacher to wash his students' Every part of Jesus's life demonstrates this idea of being a servant. Tonight, we're exploring the new covenant that he came to initiate, to pay for, and to deliver directly to you and me. So I'm really, really excited to talk about the old and the new and all of the different things along that. We're titling the message tonight, Old, New, and You. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write that on the top of the page. We're gonna talk about the old a little bit. We're gonna talk about the new a good bit. And then we're gonna kind of directly um, give you as an individual, uh, us as individuals, an invitation uh, to take a step tonight closer to Jesus. One thing that I really want everybody to know uh, very, very clearly, and you may know that we believe this, but I really want to just consistently put it in front of you, and it is that you are made to be loved. 
the way that you are wired, the way that you are designed, you are made to be loved. So when you are feeling unloved, when you are feeling uncared for, let me just tell you, you are made for it. From the very beginning, God loved us and cared for us and he hasn't stopped a day since. You are made to be loved, which is why I think exploring the old covenant and the implications of the old covenant and the implications of the new covenant are so critically important. And when we think about God, when we begin to see who God really is and what God wants to do in our life, I think that we have got a lot of realities and a lot of different ideas and a lot of different opinions that we have got to navigate really, really well. A.W. Tozer said this, and I think it's so, so encouraging. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, one second, if you're in the room and you're like, I don't believe in God, I've never really been interested in God, maybe I came with a friend, uh, maybe somebody just invited me on a whim, maybe I saw the OCO chalk yesterday, uh, there it is. Uh, maybe, I don't know like what, why you're here, I'm so glad that you are, but maybe you're sitting in the room tonight and you're like, I don't resonate with the whole God idea. So when you say something like this, I don't know how to apply that. Well, here's the thing. I think that A.W. Tozer knows and, or knew and, and believes to be true, I believe this to be true for you, is that you are made to be loved and you deserve unconditional love and unconditional love comes from God. We are not capable of unconditional love. We are human, we are broken. We should strive for unconditional love in our friendships, but we are all gonna let each other down at some point, but God will never let you down, which is why I think that this statement is so profound because we are made to be loved when we think about God, what, our, what thoughts come into our mind when we begin to think about God are critically important. So we're gonna do some heavy lifting tonight on what your theology is and maybe what some of the building blocks of what you believe really are. And I hope I hope that it will encourage you. In Luke chapter four, uh, Jesus says something uh, really, really clear. He says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also. He's talking to some people who didn't want him to leave because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. But this idea of good news if you grew up in church, you may have heard the term before. Maybe you've heard people talk about it. If you're, if you're one of those people who are like, I'm, I'm not a Jesus follower, I, I'm, I'm not connected with God. Maybe you've heard somebody say, you need to know the good news. Or you maybe have heard the, the statement, the good news of God is here and it's time to repent or it's time to change your ways or it's time to get your act together. So maybe you've got an idea of the good news that may not be very helpful or may not, may not be very hopeful. And here's the thing that I'm just absolutely convinced of. If the good news sounds like bad news, you may not have heard the new news. I know there's a lot of news in the statement. And I, I thought about it this way too. If you think that the good news is bad news, here's what I can assure you. You didn't hear the news that Matthew, that Mark, that Luke, John, Mary Magdalene, James, Peter, Paul, these people that wrote real documents that are in our Bibles, the news that they heard was so good that it would cost a lot of them their life. 
They died standing for the news that Jesus came to give. The good news of Jesus is full of hope and is full of love for you. So if you have not been introduced to that good news, I'm especially glad that you are here tonight. And I think something that we all know uh, when it comes to our life in general is where we get our news often determines what we believe. And I think that the easy analogy in this is if you watch CNN or you watch Fox or you watch MSNBC, a lot of us in the room probably don't watch the news, uh, which is probably a good thing a lot of times. But who you follow on Instagram, who you follow on Twitter often determines what you see or what you believe. And I think that that's why an accurate and holistic view of the Bible is so important because for a lot of us, the primary source of the news that we have received about our faith, about who God is, has been from the Bible. And for some of you in the room, the Bible has been wielded as a weapon that has been weaponized towards you, not a story of God's love for you. And the good news of Jesus is it gives us a better frame to view a lot of the things in the Bible that might have been wielded at you. A couple things about the Bible that I think are important. One, Jesus is why we have the Bible. Like if Jesus didn't walk the earth, die and raise again, we would more than likely absolutely not have the Bible. We might have the Jewish scriptures of the time, which were, are documented throughout the Old Testament. We, might, we very well may have that document, but we will not have any of the New Testament because the New Testament is all about Jesus. But the reason that the Bible was compiled was because Jesus actually did raise from the dead. Quick timeline, I love timelines. This, one, this one's pretty simple, uh, but <laughs> I love these things. They're really geeky. All right, so the resurrection is believed to be around AD 30 or AD 33. There's a lot of different opinions about that. I'm not getting really into that. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead and then something called the way started. And that is the way uh, that Paul described the early church in the book of Acts as he's having a conversation with somebody. He talks about the early church movement as the way. It's what it was referred to in that time, that's getting going early in and throughout the middle of kind of the first century. And the documentation of the resurrection and the way and the life of Jesus is happening all between the resurrection of Jesus and the end of the first century. Fast forward nearly 150, 200 years, an emperor called Diocletian comes onto the scene and he's like, I've had enough of these crazy Christians. I am done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move the whole weight of Rome against the Christian faith. And we're gonna begin the, larger, the largest persecution of Christians that we see during that time. And he goes after their literature and their writing, the things that were documented about Jesus. A couple of the ones specifically that it's believed uh, that were really targeted during that time was the writing of Luke that we have been studying over the past couple of weeks and the other writing of Luke, the book of Acts. But what happens through this crazy turn of events is Constantine becomes emperor and kind of the turn between the end of the third century and the beginning of the fourth century. I promise this matters. And Constantine's mom is, is known to be, have been a Christian. And Constantine has this crazy vision one night and he believes that it's Jesus in the vision. And after that, he says, all right, we've got to allow 
these Christians out of the shadows, which is where the Bible gets compiled. The bishops and the scholars who have been in hiding for generations at this point begin to bring all of this writing. And I think that the important thing about this is not even Rome, not even the full power of Rome could stop what was inevitably going to happen in the compilation of the Bible. And I think that this is so critically important because it shows us that Jesus, if he didn't raise from the dead, do we honestly think that the Bible would have been compiled? I think this is one of the lead and best arguments for Jesus actually rising from the dead. If that's something that you are struggling to kind of get your mind around, uh, it, it's a very, very normal thing to struggle with. You are far, far, far from alone. But when you begin to see the history, we begin to see that the Bible had an uphill journey all the way. I encourage you, dig into this stuff because it's really, really interesting when we begin to see the road that the Bible traveled. The second thing that I think that you should know about the Bible uh, is one, it's, it's made of 66 books. It's one story and it's got two primary parts. And I think that you're probably thinking, yep, I've got that part. I, I know how many books are around the Bible maybe, or maybe I at least know that you're gonna say that it's all about God. You're standing on a stage in church. Of course, Carson, yep, you believe that it's about you know, one story. And yes, I've heard this idea that it has two primary parts. It's the first section, of the Old Testament and then the second section of the New Testament. And I think that something that I didn't know until literally last fall uh, is very interesting. It's when you begin to dig into where the word testament comes from, we find that testament was translated from testamentum, which is a Latin word. And my throat's doing that thing that it does. Testamentum is a Latin word that when we look back into the translation of that, it comes from the word covenant. And check this out. If the people who translated the Bible into English would have done directly from Greek to English in our modern day language, our two sections of the Bible would actually be called Old Covenant and New Covenant. And that might seem minor, but I think that it's incredibly important as we approach applying the Bible. So, you're probably thinking, Carson, are you about to say that a good chunk of the Bible is irrelevant? That is not what I'm about to say, but there is an incredible truth that is found in this idea. When we begin to look at the beginning of the Old Covenant, and yes, there are multiple covenants that are stretched throughout the Bible. God made a covenant with Noah. God made a covenant with Abraham. We are benefactors actually of the covenant that he made with Abraham because he said to Abraham that he was gonna bless all nations through him. Jesus was the carrier of that blessing uh, that came through the people of Israel. But the Old Covenant primarily refers to the Mosaic Covenant that God made with the people, with the nation of Israel. And we see this happen in Exodus chapter 34. We can put this on the screen. He says, then the Lord said to Moses, write down these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets, the words of the covenant, the 10 commandments. And if you know, if you've looked at the beginning of the Bible before, if you've ever kind of peeked into the book of Leviticus, you know uh, that it was far more than 10 
commandments. There was actually 613 commandments uh, that really uh, created or were the law. But I think the thing that's important about this is I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. We are not included in that covenant. God made that covenant directly with the people of Israel to serve as a means to an end, the arrival of Jesus. He wanted a nation to pour himself into and to pour themselves into the world around them to usher in the blessing that he promised Abraham. How does this apply? The old covenant was preserved for you, but it was not an agreement made with you. When we read the Old Testament or we read the Old Covenant or we read these early books of the Torah in the first section of our Bible, they should inspire us. They should give us things that we can begin to learn and we can push deeper into. But the agreement of the Old Covenant was never made with us. In fact, I think an important thing to note is that God was making the covenant with Israel where I want you to obey my commands and in return, I'm gonna be moving you into the promised land and I will make you a royal priesthood of a nation. It was a give and take kind of covenant, very, very common in that time. So when we begin to look at the Old Testament or rather the old covenant, the old way of relating to God of the, the, the old covenant was based upon uh, when you are when you are wrong or when you have committed a sin or when you have broken one of the 613, I, I was thinking about actually bringing a copy of the 613 and pulling out some random parts, but I cut it for time and I think you'll be thankful that I did that. Uh, but when you begin to look at all these things, you see that in order to talk to God, in order to be on speaking terms with God after you had sinned, you had to bring an animal sacrifice to, to re, re, regain your rightness with God which is why it's so important for us to do the work, to see the covenant that was made with us and not apply the way of the old covenant that was never made with us. So to put it simply, the old covenant is obsolete. And if you are a Jesus follower or you are a Christian or you grew up in church, you're sitting up a little bit and you're like, this dude, he just called... He just called the Bible that I have been taught from a good chunk of it obsolete. Well, the thing that I would encourage you with is I wasn't the one who said it first. And I'm not trying to cast blame, but Hebrews chapter eight says this. Hebrews chapter eight, verse six. But now Jesus, our high priest, has been given a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood. For he is the one who mediates for us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. The passage goes on. If you're reading along, it talks about uh, the prophecy that was recorded in the book of Jeremiah. Um, the, the verse goes on into verse 13. When God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one, <laughs> there's that word I use, obsolete. It's now out of date and will soon disappear. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is trying to help the people that he is writing to understand that we have got to do the work to allow the old covenant that was never made with us not to govern the way that we interact, the way that we talk, the way that we live with and for God. And here's what's at stake. Seeing the old covenant as your covenant makes your faith ceremonial when Jesus came to make it relational. 
Everything about the way of Jesus is highly, highly, highly relational. And a good bit of the old covenant is about ceremony. It's about bringing a a burnt offering to the temple in order to regain right standing with God. Remember, it's about obeying all of these things so I get the blessing and the favor of God. And this is why I think that this is so important, especially for somebody in the room who's going, I'm on the fence or I'm on the line or I'm not sure about God because of things that have been said to me about God or because of the way that the Bible has been wielded at me. Jesus came to make it relational. And in Matthew 28, Jesus says something that I believe was truly radical. And a lot of people would, would describe this, and it was, it was probably a heading in your Bible, as the Great Commission, where Jesus sends uh, his disciples out to all nations. But I think that there's another heading uh, that's incredibly important, and it really is uh, the transfer of authority that Jesus de- declares. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all. Jonathan, what does that say? Is that, is that some? All. all. Can we say that together? All. Come on, no, that was, that was pretty weak. One, two, three, all, that's good, that's good. All authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, we did that tonight, in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commandments I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. When we see the old covenant as our covenant, our faith can be reduced to ceremonial practices. When it's designed to be highly, highly relational. And when we hold to what is old, we miss the fruit of what is new. We cannot do this tug of war mentality with the covenants. Because as you begin to read and to study and to understand the life of Jesus and the declaration of authority that Jesus gave, you see that following Jesus is going to cost you. It is going to cost you a great deal. It's a powerful journey. I believe that Jesus gives so much to us. He doesn't hold anything back, but he does have a high calling for your life. We talked about this last week when Jesus said to James and John, not so with you. Don't be like the Gentile leaders that lord their authority over people. Be a servant, be a caretaker, love people as I have loved them. When Jesus said that, he described it as a new commandment. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love others as I have loved you. Someone describe it as like the the platinum rule. All the different things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He radically changed things. If you were here on Sunday, Mike talked about the flipping over of tables that Jesus did. Jesus changed everything. And he gives you and he gives me a very, very high calling. And I think it could be really, really easy for us to sit here and go, well, Jesus loves me, so that means that I can just do whatever I want. But I think when you are in a healthy relationship, when you care deeply for the other person, you're not obeying rules because you love the other person. 
You're acting out of, I care for this person. I trust this person. I believe the best about this person. I believe that that is a way to describe the relationship that Jesus has with, wants to have with you. He wants to inspire you. He wants to care for you. He wants to lead you in the way that he demonstrated, in the way that he died to ensure could come to life in the way of the kingdom of God. So we can't miss it. When we hold to what is old, we miss the fruit of what is new. So what really is new? What is the new covenant? What does it look like? And I think that this is such a clear, concise way to put it. The new covenant is Jesus' unconditional invitation to an intimate relationship with God. And when we begin to see our relationship with God as the vehicle for our transformation, it begins to change the way that we approach our faith. It means that we have a high calling, but we have an unconditional invitation. What you have done does not disqualify you. Jesus is for you right where you are. And I think that that's where this becomes so critically important. And for those of you that are in the room, you know this table is sitting down here. And I think that this is such a perfect picture because uh, how great does this look, by the way? Uh, my friend Dudley put it together. I called him yesterday afternoon on the way back to church. I was like, hey, Dudley, can you help me like recreate what the Last Supper would look like? And he kind of crushed it. But the, the reason that I want us to have this image stuck in our mind is because there, if you counted them, there's 13 chairs here and one's for Jesus and 12 are to represent the disciples. And yes, I know that they didn't, they didn't have metal chairs, but you know, it kind of worked out this way. But uh, when you look at the table and you think about the story of the Last Supper, I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, but the story of the Last Supper is incredibly important because it's where Jesus talks very, very clearly about the new covenant. But some really important context about the story of the Last Supper is they were celebrating Passover. And Passover really still is to this day, a very, very important holiday in the Jewish faith because it celebrates and commemorates the the exit of Egypt of the people of Israel. If you're familiar with that story, when God delivered uh, the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery and out of bondage, Passover is the celebration and recognition of that. It became a very holy day. There's actually parts of the original law about how to conduct a Passover dinner. So I just wanted for us to sit for a moment at this table not obviously all of us can fit around it. But I think that it's such a helpful visual because this is what I would imagine this conversation where Jesus begins to initiate the new covenant looks like. For those of you that are curious, I'm not sitting in the middle chair because that one would be for Jesus. I'm sitting in like Doubting Thomas's chair or Peter's chair that denied him three times. Great story, we'll talk about that later. But in Matthew, or sorry, in Luke, chapter 22. Uh, the, the story of the Last Supper is recorded in Matthew and Luke. And I just wanna read this together. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 22, 
We're gonna start in verse seven. We're gonna read through this together. Luke writes, now the festival of the unleavened bread arrived when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat it together. Where do you want us to prepare it? To prepare it, they asked. He replied, as soon as you enter Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitch of water will meet you, follow him, and at the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up, and that is where you should prepare our meal. They went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said, and they prepared the Passover meal there. And I would imagine it would look pretty similar to this. It would have some bread and maybe have some fruit and have you know the, some juice, some wine to drink because we don't have wine because we're in church. And they were they prepared the table. And it says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That's a, that's a, that's a warning that what we're doing here has immense meaning. It has immense impact. Then he took a cup of wine and said, give, and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, take this and share it among yourselves for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. An agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out for you, for you. And when I think about this, Jesus is sitting at the table and there's a guy named Judas sitting somewhere near him. And if you know the story of the week of Easter and the, the way that the events kind of unfolded leading up to Jesus' arrest and inevitable crucifixion, you know that Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. He turned him in to the authorities. And Jesus is sitting there saying to him, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Even though you're gonna betray me, even though you're gonna do the unthinkable, this new covenant is for you. He looks at Peter. Peter's getting ready to deny him three times right after Peter says, I'm not, I'm not gonna deny you, Lord. He says, Peter, this covenant is for you. Your actions don't nullify this covenant. Your actions have no weight on this covenant because I am taking the weight of the covenant. You don't have to do a thing. I'm handling it. This one's on me. Looks at Thomas. He's got the, the worst nickname of the disciples, Doubting Thomas. None of us would wanna be known as that. He looks at Thomas and says, yes, you struggle with doubt. Man, this covenant's for you. Thomas goes on to take the gospel and the good news of Jesus to the country of, that now is known as India. And he looks around the table 
And he looks at people who don't have it all figured out. And he says, this covenant is for you. And he, and he picks up this, the cup and he says that the new covenant is sealed in his own blood. And I think that that's such a direct tie back to the way of the old covenant. Jesus came to be the sacrifice that we could never become because we can never be perfect. And so now he's saying the new covenant is here, which means the old covenant has been fulfilled. And we see this in Matthew chapter five, where he says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. One of my favorite authors said it like this. If the, the law was a homework assignment, Jesus came to complete it. And who did he do it for? He did it for us. He did it for you. He did it to initiate and to establish the new covenant. The old is gone new has come. And I think for you and for me, we, we look at this and we think about the new covenant and we, we have a long series of, but you don't, you don't know what I've done or you don't know what I struggle with or, but Carson, I don't believe that the world was made in seven days as is recorded in Genesis. I can't sit at the table with Jesus. Or I don't believe in all the details of God. Or I don't resonate with a lot of the things that I've read in this book. Or maybe some of you are sitting here going, the church has hurt me. Or people who say that they are Christians have hurt me. How could I be a part of something that has hurt me like it has? The, the, the demographic in the room is incredibly broad. But when you look at the 12 people that were sitting at the table of Jesus, we see the same exact thing. They all came from different places. They had different struggles. They had different things that were following them every day of their life. And Jesus sits down and says, this, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The new covenant, is the reality that your covenant with God has been paid for in full. There is no remaining balance. You don't owe God anything, but he is asking for your trust. He is asking for your life. We see the reality of this in the fact that God's love is truly unconditional and he's sliding the invitation across the table and inviting you to sit here. Your freedom has come and your hope is secure. And I think the gravity of this is when we started the message tonight, we said you were made to be loved. What happened at that table that night? was the solidification that the love that you are made to receive is in the person of Jesus. And we can't afford to miss that a lot of times what this is described as is communion has become a sacrament in the church. And when you begin to look into the word communion, we see unity come up. We also see this idea of agreement. And the thing that I 
want us all to consider is we are, are we agreeing with God's new covenant with us? That his love truly is unconditional. That his love truly does reach down to you wherever you are. Because if you're anything like me, we get really picky and we go, I, I, I would like to sit at the table with Jesus. I would like to sit at the table with God, but that thing that I've never told anybody disqualifies me from sitting at the table. And I just believe that in the way that Luke wrote this down and recorded how it happened and the way that Jesus carried himself and the things that Jesus said, Jesus is pulling out the chair for you. He's saying, hey, my son, my daughter, my person, I know you by name. I came and I poured out my blood for you. My body was broken for you. Pull out the chair. Just agree with me. Don't worry about all of the details yet. Just sit down with me. No one at the table, upon Jesus saying this, had it all figured out. And as we see throughout the stories that follow, they still didn't have it figured out. They made mistakes along the way. But Jesus said, no, you sit at the table with me. I don't want anything to separate you and me. And I think when we, when we look on in the story, if we fast forward, to, you don't have to turn here, but in Acts chapter 10, Luke is kind of recounting what Jesus did. And he said, and we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him to life on the third day. Then God allowed him to appear, not to the general public, but to those whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses. We were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Remember what Jesus said, that I will not drink or eat again until the kingdom of God is here. So Luke's recording what Peter was talking about in the way of you know, Jesus, he ate and he drank. And then he goes on, he says, and he ordered us to preach everywhere and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one, all the prophets, all the people who talked along the way throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant testified about saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Yeshua, Yehoshua, direct translation, God saves. God knows you. He sees you right now, I believe. He cares for you. I believe in some miraculous way, you are on the mind of Jesus in this moment and through the events of the crucifixion and his resurrection. And the thing that I would just love to invite you to do tonight is to simply agree with Jesus that he came to do a new thing and you are included in that new thing. So I love it if we could just bow our heads, close our eyes for a moment. 
we don't do this super often around overflow because we wanna be really, really intentional with the way that we talk about salvation and the pursuit of God and the pursuit of Jesus. But the thing that I would love to just invite you to do tonight, no matter where you are in your faith, no matter where you are and what you're feeling, if you've been struggling to agree with the love that God has for you, or you've been struggling to pull out the chair and to sit down with Jesus in your life, I want you to feel the full weight of our care and our love and our support. And I'd love to just give you an opportunity to maybe lift up your eyes and look at me. If you're a person in the room that would say, Carson, I want to follow the Jesus that we are talking about. I want to experience the life that he came to give. I want to strive to believe in his name and in his new way. Would you just look at me real quick? Let's just grab eye contact really quick. Hear me clearly. It's not a list of rules. It's believing in the power of the name of the one who said he came for you. And that decision is a beautiful decision, but it is a daily decision. I would argue that it's the best yes of your entire life. So if I can encourage you, if I can help you, if I can help you continue to take steps, look deep, into my eyes and know that we want to help you experience the life that Jesus came to give you. Because Jesus said that the new covenant included you and that changes everything for you. Jesus, thank you for what you said at this table. Thank you for every person who just lifted their eyes up and said that they want to follow you. They may not have all the answers. They may not have all the perfect words to describe what they're feeling or even their questions. But God, thank you for their courage and their willingness to say, I'm in. God, I pray that right now in the seat that they're sitting in, that they would feel the courage continue taking steps towards the new that you came and died and rose again to give to them. God, I pray that they would know and they would rest tonight that your love for them is unconditional and you are with them each and every step of the way. God, we say all of this in your matchless name.